This is Omo. 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 Is this Yoko Omo? This is Omo. This is Omo. Listen up, Omo Sapiens. I'm here to tell you about a wonderful opportunity that is available to those who are practitioners of the dark arts. And by that, I mean bow restoration. The Oberlin Bow Restoration Workshop still has a few openings for participants this year. Guest instructor for this 2022 workshop, Pete Oxley, will be joining longtime instructors Jerry Pasowitz and David Orlin for an in-depth experience in bow restoration. Potential participants are expected to have some bow work experience and be able to work independently on projects they bring to this workshop. You can experience all the magic we've talked about many times on OMO this June 26th through July 2nd, right across the hallway from those of us in violin restoration. For more information and to apply, check out oberlinrestoration.com. Oberlin Restoration, Summer Camp for Violin Geeks. Welcome to OMO, the romance and reality of violin making. I am your host, Rosie Deloach, and my co-host today is Brandon Godman. Brandon, hi. Hey, Rosie. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. I'm having a lovely evening. We had a bit of hail a minute ago, so I don't, I it might be completely quiet, but if you hear any noise... Uh, yeah, it might be lightning, thunder, hail. We'll see. <laughs> as long as I don't hear a tornado siren coming from your feed, I'm good. Yes, you let me know if you do. I will. Um, and what part of the country are you in tonight? Today, tonight, I'm in uh, San Francisco. Just okay. got back from Nashville, where I spent the last week there at my shop that I've just acquired, the violin shop. Awesome. And yeah, so did my time there for the month and had a great week and now I'm back in sunny San Francisco. So are you typically there one week a month or is there not a typical yet? Um, that's what I'm shooting for the typical to be. Okay. You know, okay. Got we it. have to have goals and then we'll take it from there. But okay. I'm imagining in my mind, you get in a truck and you carry a truck bed full of instruments and supplies and drive there. And then drive back with a completely different load. Yeah, just right across the country, you know, 2,500 yeah. miles. That's great. Yeah. Especially with gas prices the way it is. Uh -huh. Some of those German Strad copies are really paying off. Yeah, so that's definitely what you do, right? Exactly. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so last month we talked about the most reality-based program possible. It was about glue and the the odds and ends of how you handle it, where it came from, all the things you want to know about hide glue. So we were deep in reality and we are steering hard into romance this time yes. because we are going to talk uh, about do our instruments have their own essence, their own awareness? Are they a bit animate? Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> Wait, is that the is that the right noise that we should make? Yeah, <laughs> it depends on the mood of the instrument. I'm actually hearing harps. Okay, you know, like yeah. 
<laughs> Perfect. So uh, there is a phrase that you told me a couple weeks ago when we were talking about this. You said, the violins and the bows are innocent. Tell me a little bit more about this. So I was recently talking to a colleague up in Seattle, and they had been speaking to a mentor some time ago uh, just about the instruments and bows, how you know some of these are centuries old. And they have been around many different cultures through many different huge world events, pivotal events in our history, actually. Um, I mean, wars, you know, when countries became countries, when they no longer were countries anymore. Um, and it's just an interesting thing because the constant throughout this time is the instrument and bow. But what he pointed out is the instruments and bows are innocent. So they maybe necessarily aren't causing things, but they were witness to this. And it kind of also, you know, we have a lot of people who are innocent bystanders to a lot of bad things that happen or good things that happen. But the instruments and bows are innocent. Yeah. It's a cool concept. Yeah. Uh, and particularly with, with what's going on right now, uh, it feels like all of us are pawns in something out of our control. Um, whether it's what's happening in the whole wide world and the thought of uh, a crazy person um, upsetting the balance of life as we know it, or in the very um, small sphere of our lives, just dealing with like bizarre inflation. I, I have an empathy for um, these smaller objects that don't have control over their provenance and who's who's in charge of them. Mm -hmm. Except I think you hold one reservation to this particular rule, perhaps. I, I do. I do. And there is a phrase, this was actually introduced to me by our editor, Jason Peoples. This is a Japanese folk tradition. It is called Sukomogami. Okay. Say that again. Sukomogami. Sukomogami. Okay. And it's, Super interesting. It's it's possibly the exception to this rule. And uh, so this is a belief that tools have acquired a kami or a spirit. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Now, scholars have ballparked the time that this was this idea was introduced into the world around 800 or 900 A.D., spread mostly in the Japanese Middle Ages and declined more in recent generations. Sukumogami is usually reserved to understand tools, maybe not specifically musical instruments. But instruments and bows are tools. You are correct. I think that they are tools. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) If you were to go visit the average Japanese person in the Middle Ages, they would probably apply this toward a hand tool. Okay. Like, um, yeah, some, something that's been handed down through generations. And so the actual word, please don't ask me how, um, it's got the word 99 folded into it. So this philosophy of 99 years or more is, is the age threshold for inanimate objects to become animate. Okay, so 99 years, not a day more. Not a day more if you are a literalist. 
Okay. Uh, <laughs> but if you're thinking of this more in the like just the abstract zone, just old things. Okay. They get their own life force. So then what happens to them after they get said soul? Uh, well, then they they have some of their own sway. They have some of their own opinion. And uh, apparently if they're if they're treated well, then they're they're gonna behave like good tools. And uh, if you are not kind to them, then they may not like it and they might express their own opinion. Okay. So yeah. some of these things are kept around and some aren't, I assume? You're absolutely right. And, and again, I can't tell you how this applies to musical instruments, but uh, something very old around the house, if it's uh, kind of a lot, it's long in its years and it's uh, not been handled very well, uh, some people would just break the item to get it out of the house. We, we don't want it becoming alive. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so all of our all of our early Roths are gone. Yeah, goodbye, Roths. <laughs> goodbye. We treated you too poorly. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you were made in 1923 or 22, then you're just on the brink of. Uh huh. If if there's something on your workbench that was built in 1923 and it has not been treated well, watch out. <laughs> Do not turn your back. Yeah, don't turn. Yeah. <laughs> I guess this is probably, as with all traditions, there are, um, it's not a black and white rule, and it's more of just a tradition or ideology passed down. So, I mean, I assume it's not black and white 99 years. It's not, you know, yeah. Yeah. all you, objects. But You can put this in the camp of folklore, but well-known folklore. Very like, interesting. It, yeah. And, you know, as for me, in this industry... Uh, I've I've heard people say that some older violins just already know the song. Yeah. Or or that they have more voices than a newly made instrument. Have you have you heard expressions like that? Totally. I mean, I've even picked up instruments before that just felt like, oh yeah, you know how to play this thing. Like, you know, or even playing uh like some of my heroes' instruments who had passed on. I mean, I'm a fiddle player and I had the opportunity to pick up um Kenny Baker's fiddle and Kenny Baker was Bill Monroe's fiddler for 38 years. And, you know, I mean, he played on a lot of iconic recordings that I love. And then a friend of mine picked up, got to buy one of his instruments after he passed. And I remember playing it in the shop and playing some of Kenny's songs on it. And it just felt, it was just different, you know, number one, because, you know, some of them were recorded with this instrument. So it's familiar there. But just you were able to hit in certain things just the right way to where it sounded like Kenny. Um, and it's like mm. it was an old hat to that instrument, you know. Mm -hmm. As if it already knew. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guys, I have got just a little mini story to whet your appetite. Coming at us from Jerry Lynn. He's going to tell us about one of his encounters with a violin that might have so when I was about 22, 23 years old, this older couple walks into the shop and they have with them a, a viola that they are interested in, in, in getting rid of. They, uh, they had inherited the contents of this house and the story behind the contents of this house and everything in it was 
it had belonged to somebody who was a a colonel of all things in the Union Army. And at this point, I'm thinking, yeah, right, because you know, everybody's got a story behind the violin they bring in. One guy had a story that uh, his <laughs> his JTL Medio Fino had belonged to Jesse James, and I, I spent a long time trying to convince him that, no, that wasn't possible, but I digress. So this viola, uh, it was it was kind of unusual. At the time, I didn't know enough about instrument identification to really understand what was going on, but we decided to sell this instrument on consignment for these, these folks. And let's fast forward a few months, and this viola is, is hanging in the showroom. And this woman walks in. She seemed to be about, I don't know, middle-aged. Uh, kind of had this 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 suburban soccer mom vibe. You know, rolls up in a minivan, hops out with her kids, comes in. And in the, the course of conversation, she's talking about her psychic abilities. And I'm not the, the sort of person that goes woo-woo or anything like that. I'm like, okay, psychic abilities, whatever. And she starts walking around the showroom and when she gets to this viola she stops and she points at it and she says this viola is pure evil okay so let's uh let, let's let's back up here a little bit and most violists are like the coolest people to deal with a lot of my favorite clients are violists, and I seem to attract them for whatever reason. They're just tons of fun. They never take anything personally, except this one guy. There's this one guy whom I've been dealing with, unfortunately, no longer. If he calls me, I'm going to be forever busy. This is the guy that uh, he's he's a teacher, and he knows a little bit about instrument work, and he would do things like, say, uh, this person's... This person, the uh, this, this 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 instrument needs a, a neck reset. I want the New York numbers. I want the New York numbers. I want projection of twenty-seven millimeters. I want an overstand of five point five. And so the instrument would show up, and you'd take measurements, and it's exactly what he's talking about. The guy obviously just wants to be a jerk. He's a total asshat. <laughs> this guy ends up buying the viola of pure evil it's a match made in heaven or probably hell (laughs) (laughs) guys after the break i've got a little history on the violins of hope and brandon is going to tell us the story of the violin that did not want to be touched stay with us Special thanks to Learning Trade Secrets for supporting this episode. Listen up, my bow people. There are still a few spots open for the Advanced Bow Making course, July 3rd through 8th, taught by Rodney D. Moore. If you've been making bows for three years and want to further your knowledge, broaden your income, and refine your style for competition, this is the class for you. And for the bow restorers out there, LTS still has openings for Intermediate to Advanced Bow Restoration. July 24th through 28th for anyone with working experience in bow making and bow repair who wishes to further their skills. 
Host David Orlin will guide you this week on more complex problems with a special focus this year on the frog. If you and your workshop need to level up your skill set in bow repairs and restoration, sign up today. You can register for these courses and more by visiting learningtradesecrets.com. Next time you're traveling through the Twin Cities, you'd be as dull as a used fingerboard plane to miss visiting House of Note. Located in St. Louis Park, you'll find the people of House of Note taking care of players at every level, from the beginner student to the Minnesota Orchestra performer. House of Note has built their reputation over the years on being kind, fair, and honest. Pop in and you're likely to find Jeff picking out hairs for a bow rehair, while nearby Lyle is getting the symmetry perfect on a cello neck set. You might even find Aaron carving a stellar bridge for a new violin setup, while Nick perfects the perfect fit of a sound post patch. And Ty is putting the final polish on a new set of pegs that fit just so. If you can't visit these guys in person, check out houseofnote.com where you can commission a purple electric violin made by Lyle and other things like their wide selection of bows and showroom instruments or sign up for a rental instrument online. House of Note. By musicians, for musicians. Welcome back, guys. So I'm sure you've all heard of Violins of Hope. Brandon, you told me that you've actually visited their exhibits more than once. Yes, once in Nashville and once in San Francisco, actually. Okay. Well, let me explain a little bit, and I'd love to hear about your experience. So this is a continuing project. This is a private collection of violins, violas, and cellos, all collected since the end of World War II. And these instruments tour internationally as a reminder to people of beautiful things that remain even in ugly times. All instruments belonged to Jews before and during the war. Many were donated or bought from survivors. Some were given by family members. Some have a lineage of being played at concentration camps in Germany. Now, as far as the, the appearance of these guys, some are very simple. Some are highly decorated. Uh, several depict the Star of David inlaid into the back. And as far as their connection to their people, there's a, a Yiddish writer named I.L. Peretz. He wrote in one of his short stories that one could tell how many boys were in a Jewish family by counting the number of violins hanging on the wall. So it was not uncommon for many klezmer instruments to be decorated with this symbol, many of them made in Czechoslovakia or Germany. So tell me a little bit, Brandon, about your experience visiting the Violins of Hope. Yeah, um, in Nashville, we actually got to do a private tour that they extended to all the shops in town um, where we went through and we got a tour by the luthiers who pieced these things back together Um they told some of their stories about dealing with them and just, you know, the spirit maybe that went along with each of them. And I mean, they definitely had stories to share about oddities around ones and, you know, darkness or even brightness, because some of it's not all the violence of hope. They're not all bad stories. Some of them are very uplifting stories. Yeah. You know, that really involve um, new life and uh, survival. And um, I think that's something that's really interesting about that whole thing. And then I got to see them once again in San Francisco 
um, that time I got to hear a private or a concert wasn't private. It was at the library and they had four different players. One was a Irish player. One was a traditional American fiddler. The other one was a klezmer violinist. Um, and then the fourth one was a middle Eastern violinist. And they even, you know, they each mentioned before they played about how living with this instrument for a week or two weeks, just kind of, you know, it was a different feeling because they did carry so much of a history and uh, it was just a neat thing to see, hear the stories, see some beautiful instruments um, and then some real just run of the mill basic violins that, you know, belong to the common folk. Yeah, that have a history. Yeah, for sure. So we've got many instruments. I'm just giving you guys a few highlights. So, for example, we've got the Morpurgo violin, and this was given by Senora Morpurgo. So her husband, which I, I want to say this right, I believe it's Gualtiero. So he was given the violin by his mother before she was sent to Auschwitz. The violin accompanied him to a forced labor camp, and Gualtiero survived his experience he lived until the age of 97, and in 2012, his violin was donated by family members to the Violins of Hope. Uh, we've got the violin of Valeria Teichner and Sandor Fischer, and her life by chance was spared in Auschwitz because she could play on a random borrowed violin. Later, she met Sandor who was the violin's owner, they survived the camps and they ended up married. Their daughters maintained that he played the violin until the end of his days. That's one of the ones you can see in the collection. Now, the main one I would like to talk about, the one that could possibly have Tsukomogami. Uh, some people might say that this is uh, the centerpiece of this collection. It, it depends on your perspective because it's not a violin that is played and it's not a violin that is going to be played. But I'm sure many of you guys have heard of the Heil Hitler violin. Now, this story comes to us from Josh Henry out of the Washington, D.C. area. Roughly 10 years ago, Josh was doing what many of us do. And, and Brandon, you're knee deep in this kind of operation as well. He was dealing with a wholesaler, looking for some old German violins that needed some workshop love to resell at their shop. The dealer in question was a fellow up north, New York at the time, a man Jerry likes to call the rabbi. Are you familiar with this guy? I am, yes. <laughs> he shows up all in black dress with the traditional Hasidic side curls. He's showing a selection of instruments. And as Josh puts it, this one had no cracks and the price was right. So he receives the instrument and Josh proceeds in the typical way that a lot of us do. He pulls off the end button and he can see that there is some kind of writing on the top plate. And Based on what I've seen online, I'm guessing it would be noticeable even from the end buttonhole that the top plate is not graduated well, just really, really rough marks. And it's got one of those integrated base bars that isn't even straight. So I, I think it's just an easy guess for anybody 
who wants to give violin a little love. They're like, I, I'm going to have to open this up because there's, there's work to be done inside. Pop a top again. Pop the top. <laughs> so he pops that top off. And, and so much of it is typical. It's what we see once we loosen that final block and the plate comes free. We get a real look inside. There's the rugged scrape lines inside. There's those artificial corner blocks that are just like a flat piece of wood that are sandwiched into the edges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tasty. <laughs> there's there's the fat, hastily cut base bar made from the top plate. But also, there is a massive swastika inside in the upper bout. And mm. some writing inside that looks like someone's name possibly with the date of 1936 so our buddy josh he posts several pictures on facebook of what he found inside and it doesn't take long for someone to write him person says hey that's not someone's name that's high german script and it says heil hitler so our our friend doesn't know what to do Uh, he says part of him wanted to Regraduate the violin, which would erase all of this inscription. Let's just pretend it never happened, make it look like a normal violin. The other part of him thought, maybe I should just burn this instrument. It's it's too icky. So with that dilemma, he did probably what a lot of us would do. He just put an elastic band around the instrument to like put the top plate and the rest of the body back together. And he sets it on the shelf, just leaving it alone. A few months later, Josh comes across a tiny ad in Strad Magazine for the Violins of Hope project, which leads to him emailing the director of the project, Amnon Weinstein in Israel, which leads to Amnon calling him at 2 a.m. over the top excited. Josh agreed to donate the violin to the project, mails it halfway across the world, and it is on display to this day. Oof. Yeah, right? Oof. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what to say other than that. <laughs> so there's more to this story. And, and you know, you and I, as luthiers, we, we fill in the holes to the story based on the clues that are left from the violin. We have good guesses. As I said, this violin that Josh Henry bought, it had no cracks. So why was it opened up? Why was there an inscription inside the violin? Yeah. And also, I mean, the time period, the the fact that it had that inside of it would definitely date the violin, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to point out the year, 1936. Oh, it was actually dated on the inside. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay. I hate talking about this stuff, but... So this signature happened when Hitler had only been in power for three years. Uh, There was no, what we know now, there was no final solution. Uh, What it was at the time was hate speech. And, uh, and, and as, as far as we know, not much more than that, but that's uh, it. If we look at this inscription, that's the power that this man had over this population three years into his rise to power. 
yeah, and then the fact that the violin was carrying that around, unbeknownst to the owner, after that. Yeah, and and that's like as far as what we can put together. There's there's no reason to have opened that violin. So I I can only presume that this violin was in the hands of a Jewish person, went to a luthier, and that person had such distaste for this person that they decided to put that graffiti inside the instrument with no need to open the instrument up, just just to do it. And then close it back up, take this person's money, and send them on their way. Like like a cruel joke. Yeah. Definitely a statement of the times. Yeah. Ah, I don't like it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so perhaps the instrument changed hands a couple times. Perhaps it ended up with the rabbi next. Perhaps like it it only time that it was not in the hands of a Jewish person was when this specific person who called themselves a luthier put this inscription inside the instrument. And then the next time it is not in the hands of a Jewish person is when it's in Josh Henry's hands and he makes this discovery. Right. I mean, an interesting thing, you know, is that if you go back to the idea that the instrument is innocent, Mm-hmm. Um, there's almost uh, the fact that it did wind up with Josh Henry and now it's on display with the violence of hope was kind mm-hmm. of a correction and a rebalancing. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's kind of like exactly. a pendulum coming back. It's like, it. it's like, no, this, despite what has happened to me, I am a symbol for my people and yeah. I am on display for my people. Like, and 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 the the second time it went to the hands of a, a a kind, good noble gentile luthier, this person decided to to do right by the instrument and put it back with its people so that it can do the good work to to show people what it's been through. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a very interesting concept. That instance alone. Um, has to do with someone who didn't make the instrument, but just was a caretaker or, you know, someone who happened to encounter the instrument in its lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, but you look at uh, makers who write inscriptions in their instruments, you know, like made or completed, you know, the day of the birth of my first child or something like that. Like you've seen, you've seen and heard so many things or completed, the day that my you know wife passed away or husband passed away or I don't know. There's a lot of emotion because makers are artists. Makers are putting energy into these things as are players, you know, um, and repairmen yeah. and uh, all the above. Um, mm. So there's like that energy kind of stays in there until it's released in some way, I think. Yeah. That takes me back to just a little little memory of mine. I was not making violins at the time. Uh, so, mm-hmm. and in fact, I'm still on my very first. So, I, I, you know, I'm not trying to embellish this, the, the here and now. Uh, but uh, the, the day that I went to my father's funeral, I went right back to work because it felt like the right place to be the right release of energy. So um, yeah, who, who knows what we're a part of when we're, um, we're showing up to work with the energy that we have. So mm-hmm. that's, that's a side story. Um, 
So for Josh, Josh Henry, who encountered the Heil Hitler violin, uh, he says, I am so grateful at the way it played out and Amnon became a friend of mine. It opened my eyes to this project and a great friendship of 10 years. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, had that not happened, none of this would have happened. Yeah, it would have been another absolutely. instrument that someone would have bought and resold. Yeah. Yeah. And so as for Amnon, he says that he will never restore this instrument. This is exactly how it's meant to be now. And you can find it still with the top off on display. Yeah. Yep. I've seen that instrument and that's a powerful story every time yeah. you hear it. Absolutely. Now, Brandon, you have a personal story that you're going to share with us tonight that I'm very excited about because if you homo sapiens out there, if you go back to season two, episode 20, the episode is called Pablo's Adventure. This is the story of the violin theft ring. It was an instrument theft ring and the violin broke the whole case wide open. And Brandon has got another vein of looking at this whole story. And I can't wait to hear it from you. Yeah, well, it was actually fun because when I brought this story up when we were preparing for this particular episode, I'd forgot that you guys had done an episode on this particular thing. So it's just, it's another, you know, very odd, um, I don't know, uh, a very odd thing that it all plays together and there's a common thread. Yeah. Um, yeah. So here we go. Um, I guess this was 2014. Yes, 2014. I was working at the violin shop in Nashville, still living there. And uh, Fred Carpenter, my uh, old business partner at the shop, the guy who started the violin shop, um, I went into work one day and he said, oh man, he said, yesterday when you were out, um, this guy came in and he was just distraught. And he came in carrying a violin kind of tucked under his arm uh, or a case, you know, and he just looked really troubled. And so Fred started talking to him and it came to be known that the guy's wife had just passed away suddenly and they had just buried her and he was going to be moving to Florida to live near his kids uh, who were down there now. Um, and she had been apparently out jogging and had a heart attack, sat down on the curb and died just oh. so sudden, you know? Um, yeah. And so this was all, you know, they were in their late fifties, maybe early sixties, grown kids, all that, but still too young to die, you know? Yeah. Um, so obviously it's, you know, very fresh, very abrupt. And this guy says, I don't know what to do with her instruments and bows. Um, but I do know I can't keep them around because she was a professional violinist. She taught, um, and we, I just can't have them in the house. They carry too much memory, all of that stuff. And he even brought in like a big tote of all of her sheet music. I mean, he was emptying his house and bringing all of this stuff to us to deal with. And he said, you know, let's put it on consignment. If you want to buy it, I just have to have it gone. And, 
course, Brett is a real empathetic person and he just, you know, it broke Fred's heart as it would anyone to see this guy going through this. And yeah. so we take the violin in. It was a Benjamin F. Phillips made in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1938. And it was a beautiful instrument. It had been cared for very well over the years, had a really nice Jaeger case, a nice... I, uh, I have to point out that it it's not 100 years old, but no. we'll make an <laughs> exception. We'll make an exception. Um, uh Nice Jaeger case, nice Morzo bow with it, um, you know, a professional's instrument. And so us, we're like, well, this will be a good thing to offer for sale and, you know, get it into good use. Because that was his wish, is that it would go to good use, um, that someone else could enjoy it as she had. Um, so we make it a priority to get it set up. I take it to my bench, start working on it, and I do the fingerboard playing. Because this thing... It'd been kept up, but it was also a violin in regular use. It needed a fingerboard playing all the things. Yeah. Playing the fingerboard, that went okay. Um, got it all touched up, uh, adjusted the pegs. I go to start fitting the sound post. And, I mean, okay, when we're fitting sound posts, sometimes you nail it in, you know, five minutes, three minutes. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's like an hour, right? Yeah. I must have cut five or six posts for this instrument. And it just did never, it just did not want to fit. I've never had, I've, I've had like, (laughs) I've ruined the first one. Right. But then I know by the second one, the second one goes. Yeah. Yeah. And if you make it to the third, then you're just having a rough day, you know? Yeah. This was like five or six. I had a pile of them on my bench. How are you not just breaking that instrument in half over your knee? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was more like. It's never the instrument's fault. They're innocent, remember. Um, of course. <laughs> so I was more like beating my head over my knee at that point. Um, so finally get a post fit. Okay, move on to the bridge. And it took two bridges. I mean, I think the first one I was like, <laughs> it was one of those things where I was like going to, you know, cut the heart and it like broke it off or something. I mean, it was, there was something weird that happened with that. I remember distinctly. Um so I finally get this thing set up. And when you I just, you just like look down and all of your tools are just like someone who just like rubs sand over yep. ruining uh, the all over every it was just rough. <laughs> and I remember looking at uh, one of my coworkers and just saying, This thing does not want to be touched. It's just yeah. like do not mess with me, you know? And mm-hmm. I remember playing some notes on it after I got it set up and trying to adjust the post to get it to sound the best, and it was just tense. It was not a pleasant instrument, you know, um, and I just took it to the violin shop and, or, you know, at that time we had a workshop separate from the shop and took it over to the showroom and hung it on the wall and thought, well, you know, we'll just let it set for a second and maybe revisit it in a month or something and just see. Yeah. Sometimes it calms down yeah, and, just and it's more amenable. Let mm-hmm. it get used to a new setup, try some different strings, whatever. Um, I think three weeks later, it wasn't more than a month, but I was off on a Saturday and Fred calls me and he had had a busy day in the shop, lots of people in, but he said, you're not going to believe this. The Benjamin Phillips violin just got stolen. He said, I've looked out there. I've looked everywhere in the shop, looked through sales orders, made sure he's like, you didn't send that out. Did you? And I said, no, that's still been, I mean, it doesn't sound great right now. Um, and he said he'd been helping some people that day and he remembers seeing it because this guy was having someone else play it for him in the shop, a girl or someone. And 
compare two instruments, you know? Um, and cause that's not fishy when they don't yeah, play the instrument themselves. <laughs> exactly. So, and he said, you know, he had been helping another client and then the guy left and he just, you know, shops get busy. So, mm-hmm. um, he looks over and as he's tied in up, the instrument's gone. So he immediately calls the police and they come and we file a report. But the thing, of course, that's the most disheartening is that we've got to call the widower of, you know, the owner. Yeah. And tell him like, hey, her violin just got stolen. What are we going to do? So this was Saturday evening um, by the time all of this was finally happening. Um, and Fred said, well, we'll call him on like Tuesday. Well, I hopped on Facebook because at that point, the like the violin new professionals was really kicking up on Facebook. There were a couple groups where people were starting to talk about violins and share information. And I just put a little notice in a photo of the violin. I said, um, you know, we just had a violin stolen from our shop in Nashville. It's a Benjamin Phillips violin made in Pittsburgh, 1938. I described it as best I could. And I said, just keep your eyes peeled. Um, and I believe the next day, or it was, it wasn't too long after that. It was just a few days. We get a call from Pablo Alfaro and he Mm -hmm. says, Brandon, we just had someone reach out and they have an American violin made in Pittsburgh that they want to bring in and show us. And I told him to bring it in. Um, so they're on the way and I believe that's exactly how it happened. And he said, I'll keep you updated. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, he calls in a couple hours and he's like, the police are here. We have your violin. The guy's in cuffs. I just had a fight in a parking lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all of this stuff. And it was, it was very clever the way he did it, you know, cause he said, well, I need to take it in the back and examine it. And that's when he started making all the calls. Um, mm-hmm. And they stalled the guy until the cops could get there. And lo and behold, this thing then turned up to bust this theft ring that had been happening. Yeah. It, it blew the whole thing wide open. Yeah. And if, if you want to hear the rest of that, then it's season two, episode 20. It is. <laughs> it is. But it's that violin. And I just think it had, you know, call me kooky or whatever, but it had some energy in it that mm-hmm. had not been settled. It was fresh. Mm-hmm. And of course that would be the one to just say like, no, you know, this isn't going to happen to me. <laughs> that guy messed with the wrong violin. Violin exactly. didn't want to be touched. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, we get the violin back. It took like six months because of course dealing with the police and he, I think the guy's still in jail from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I happened to be in, um, I happened to be down in um, Atlanta where the violin was, you know, uncovered. Um, And I went by the police station where they were holding it and was able to pick it up, bring it back to uh, Nashville. And guess what? It found a beautiful home in a couple years. And it just opened up and it sounded amazing. And that person who bought it is still playing it. Oh, that makes me so happy. Yeah. So. It fell in love again. (laughs) It did. It's fantastic. Thank you for telling it. I didn't know that there was more to the story, but of course, of course, with violins, there's always a new story 
there's going to be stories that outlive us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, for me, this makes me reflect on a lot of things because first of all, we, we as luthiers, we like our precision. We like black and white in a lot of ways. We want, you know, the, we want things measured in millimeters to a certain angle and a certain degree and want things fit perfectly with chalk. And uh, there's not that room for this thought when we're in that arena, in that camp that, oh, this isn't a live thing. But for me, I don't have a problem with living in both camps with that. This can be the thing that you do at your workbench can be an act of precision and clarity and measurement, but also a ceremony, also Mm -hmm. a practice that brings about something that outlives us. That's beautiful. That has its own energy that can have its own spirit. I see nothing wrong with having one foot in both camps. And uh, I wonder if there's any people out there that feel the same way. You know, I certainly hope so. (laughs) Because it's not black and white. It's just not. There's, I mean, this is all the instruments alone and tools. um, But there's so much energy constantly being put into them. Energy towards striving towards perfection. Energy of playing for funerals. Energy for celebrations. Energy for, you know, achievement. Energy for mourning. Um, I mean, it's all of that is being put into it and it has to come out some way too. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was a really smart guy that says energy is only transferred, not uh, created nor destroyed. (laughs) Somebody. He sounds real smart. It's like a law or something. (laughs) Well, guys, I would like to close uh, with a clip of just something that I ran across on the internet. Uh, This is an audio clip of a young Ukrainian violinist who in early March performed a national folk song called What a Moonlit Night from a Bunker. The name of the violinist is currently unknown. Thank you guys for joining us on this episode of Omo. We appreciate you listening. We appreciate you. Omo is an all-Luthier podcast, produced by Rosie Deloach, Chris Jacoby, and Jerry Lynn. The show is edited by Jason Peoples, music by Invoke Sound. If you enjoy our show, you can help us out by leaving an iTunes review or becoming a Patreon member at patreon.com slash omopod, where you can get your very own Omo swag. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us at mail at omopod.com or call the Omo phone at 240 686-5345. Thanks for listening.